Hi, this is Jeff with the SBCA podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on our podcast or would like more information about the podcast, please contact us at sbcapod at gmail.com. That's sbcapod at gmail.com. Let's get to the show. SBCA podcast. I am your host, Jeff, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today. This podcast is for you, camp directors, camp managers, camp volunteers, whoever you are. This podcast is designed to give you the information to make you successful to help your camp grow to its fullest potential content, connections, and camps. That's what we're doing here, and we hope you enjoy. Let's get on with the show. Hi, and welcome to the SBCA podcast. I am sitting with a survivor, warrior, and champion in the fight against human trafficking, Savannah Parview. Savannah is a nationally recognized speaker on the topic of human trafficking and child abuse topics. Savannah, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Thank you for having me. So for those out there who don't really know your story, give us uh, give us kind of the rundown. Uh, why are you in this fight? Well, I grew up in Central Florida, and I have two, other, two older brothers, but both of my parents were drug addicts and alcoholics from as far as I can remember. Um, I started being sexually abused around the age of five, And then when I was 11, my mother started selling me for her drugs, and I began being trafficked um, in Central Florida and out of local hotels beginning at the age of 11, all the way up until I was around the age of um, 13. I was taken to foster care, and... I started cutting myself and it wasn't as common as it is now. So I was moved from group home to group home and eventually placed in a residential treatment center that was for kids in foster care. And when I was there, I soon realized that the staff there were friends with my trafficker and I continued being trafficked in foster care. And all the way up until I was around the age of 26, I was trafficked off and on. And didn't really talk about it. Um, I was always afraid to talk about it because I was told that I would be the one that was in trouble. But then I finally learned what human trafficking was in 2014. And once I learned that, I realized that I could talk about it. And I started going to counseling and working through the trauma that happened to me. And then I slowly just started sharing my story with other people to Um, spread awareness of what's happening. And then I've just been 
working with law enforcement and state legislatures to bring about change that would have helped me when I was being trafficked, but that can help people now. Very good. And so if you're asking yourself and you're listening to this podcast, why why are we talking about this right here in camp season on camp podcast uh, with all this come to light and the SBC as leaders, uh, we should be heartbroken. We should be angry and we should be uh, vigilant against these things happening in our camps and our churches and in our communities. And this should be a time of repentance for the SBC and all of its affiliate. And that, and that means us. That means camp directors, camp leaders. We need to be uh, we need to be on the forefront of this, making sure that uh, it's not happening where we are. And I don't think that I'm overstating it, but I don't think that we can make too much of this issue. We we have a history of not making enough about it. It's time to rectify that by by making a lot of what is going on. And so I, as, as we're looking at this, and one of the reasons that I wanted to bring Savannah on is because I feel like uh, we have a few, we have a set of problems that kind of led us to this. And and the first one's what I call the warm body problem. And then this is the problem of needing to fill a position and not taking the time or the care uh, needed to fill it properly, but filling it with the most available person because we feel like we have to. We want to do this program. We want to do this thing. We've got to have so many kids coming into the camp. And instead of sometimes doing the things that's right, we do what makes sense in the moment and we just fill it with a warm body because they're available. You see this in churches a lot where they need somebody to watch kids in the nursery or to teach VBS or do some program. And they basically beg anybody who will to come and fill these gaps because they feel like that it's needed for them to be able to do that. And sometimes that need overrides the necessity of doing the right things. So how can camp and conference center leaders and church leaders, for that matter, address this warm body problem? Well, we could have proper staffing procedures, not just for our staff, but also for any volunteer that we have come in. We need to have things already put in place to to prevent this from happening. And we need to do the best that we can screening our staff and volunteers, anybody that we put with kids and doing background checks. And background checks are great, but they are only good if somebody has already been caught. Right. And those those are still a valuable tool. We're not saying not to do background checks, but the reality is that you're only catching those who have been caught, which we need to do. Yes. But it is, it is something that we need to realize that's not the end-all be-all. And then also, we can't force the issue. If we can't fill a gap in our programming, then we don't need to force it. We need to limit our numbers make programming changes, but our first priority needs to be the safety and security of the people that's in our care as our first priority and not the program itself. Absolutely. And I think that, I think that just having that in your mindset of, you know, if we don't have the people to be able 
to run this particular program or to do this thing. Maybe we need to change the way we do it in order to make it happen, but we don't need to shortcut the system just because we think it has to happen a certain way. So I think we can be guilty of that sometimes, and uh, we need to be we need to be mindful of that. So the other problem that that I see that may have led to some of this is what I call the head in the sand problem. So the, the head in the sand problem is is this basic attitude that 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 kind of stuff doesn't happen here. I you you know, I, I don't need to. I don't need to worry about prevention and precaution and, and and preparation. I mean, that's unnecessary for us because we're just a small place, or we're just this, or we're too big for that to happen. Uh, but one of the things that I saw with this is that there's no there's no scope. There's no one factor that leads to this is. This is where these things happen. It can happen anywhere and at any time. So so we can't stick our head in the sand and, and say that doesn't happen here because when it does happen here and we're caught off guard, that's that's on us. We weren't prepared. So Savannah, what what leads to that type of attitude? Well, many people don't want to believe something is true until they are faced with the reality of it. It is simply denial. And then others, though they wouldn't say it, believe that ignoring a problem, it will go away and they won't have to deal with it. But eventually they're going to have to deal with it. Right. And so how do we get around it? How do we get around this attitude? We have to talk about these things and talk about them regularly, not just have a training and mention it during that training, but talk about it so that it becomes something that people are comfortable talking about. It isn't fun, but it's necessary to ensure everyone's safety and security of your ministry. That's good. And, and, you know, you, we mentioned comfortable, you know, there, that leads me to the, the next problem that we have. And I think that that attributed to some of this is that comfortable problem or the self-assured problem, whatever you want to call it. And that means that after having done a training, okay, so we, we hear you, we, you know, we, we need to be better at this. So we're going to hold a training. We're going to hold it a couple of weeks before camp. And now it's handled. We never have to discuss it again. And that's kind of that, that, okay, we're, we're, we're uncomfortable with it, but we're going to do it. And we're going to, you know, we've done our, we've done our good deed. We've checked our box and we don't want to bring it up again until we feel like we have to. But with a lot of things going on any given day, not to mention the bustle of camp season, it seems like going through the motions to check the box on something is an easy fix. But the reality is that it it kind of downplays the impact and the importance of recognizing and, and preventing these issues from happening. What do we do? I mean, how do we how do we get over that check the box men- mentality? How do we how do we fix that that issue and that problem? So it's not just, OK, I've done my duty by doing this one thing. How do we get beyond that? Well, we mentioned talking about issues, but it has to be more than just a program or a training. It has to be a matter of prayer with your staff. It needs to be regular checks and balances, and there needs to be systems in place for the checks and balances to ensure everyone is aware and mindful of how to spot and prevent abuse, whether it be sexual or physical. Right. Or, or otherwise. I yeah. mean, there are other, other types of, of abuse as well, I'm sure. So much of this fire 
it was sparked by the report, the release of the report by Guidepost Solutions, that independent investigation, and the uh, subsequent list of names that have been released over the past couple of weeks. And from reading the report, as as I'm sure as it, it did to me, as it would to anybody else, I think that was reading it is the main focus of the executive committee was to avoid liability, uh, even more so than just protecting the victims in in each of those cases. And as as directors, limiting liability is I mean, that is something that we do. I mean, that's that's ingrained, if you if you can say it this way, in our DNA. I mean, we're we're supposed to be making sure that we're not liable, the camp's not liable, our staff's not liable in, in some of these things. But sometimes that limiting liability or thinking about liability is not always the correct path. What What's our responsibility when it comes to allegations or suspecting abuse in our ministries? Well, our responsibility is we need to report anything that we are told is happening or that we suspect is happening. We don't necessarily have to be 100% sure that this is happening, but if we suspect something is happening, it needs to be addressed and reported to the proper authorities wherever you may be. And a lot of states have mandatory reporting laws where if you know of a child that's being abused, it must be reported or you are also liable. Yeah, and I, I found a resource where you can look up your state's particular laws. And I'm going to put a link to that resource in the description of the podcast here. Uh, but it's at childwelfare.gov. And I found out that that in that research that many states actually have what's called a good faith law. Uh, Florida has a good faith law. Uh, I believe Texas has a good faith law. Several of these states have good faith laws that actually protect you from liability if you're acting in good faith when you report abuse. And so that relieves that fear, I think, in my mind of, hey, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm worried about the liability. Is this going to come back on us? What if we're wrong? All of those things. Because if we're doing our due diligence, if we're acting in good faith and we're reporting uh, to the to the scope and the level of our ability, we're falling within the law at that point to do what's right there. And I'll, I'll attach that white paper. It, it's extremely helpful, but you can go on that childwelfare.gov website and look up your particular state and see how to report, where to report, all of those things. It's all available right there, as well as be able to drill down into the specific laws that affect you where you are in each state. Because in not in every state um, are you seen as a primary mandatory reporter, but you still have the responsibility to report regardless. So you need to look at some of those. So we, we've discussed our responsibility a little bit and, and how that all works and what we need to do. But how do we identify issues? Uh, let's, let's start with the potential victims. What are some things we should be looking out for? Well, every situation is going to be different and every person is different, but some of the common things to look for would be maybe a child that isn't normally withdrawn and now they're withdrawn and quiet. It may be abuse, but it may not be. Any type of self-harm is a sign of abuse. Or maybe even if the abuse is happening at home, 
that child may not want to go home. They may want to find reasons to stay. I know when I was being trafficked, I would ask my teachers for detention at school so that I wouldn't have to go home right after school. And they would let me stay, but nobody ever asked why I didn't want to go home. So that's something else you could pay attention to is if a child doesn't want to leave and wants to be there longer. Different, maybe they are talking about a friend who's being abused, but they're really talking about themselves. There's an opportunity to ask more questions there. So it, it really it really is based a lot on observation, communication with with the students and, and seeing them. And when you're talking about that student uh, that it seems to be standoffish, I think one of the things that you can tell is what how are their how is their peer group reacting to them? Uh, are they expecting them to be a little more interactive than they are and they seem to be withdrawn from that? That's a great indicator, I think, of how to tell is this child normally more outgoing or they yeah. normally more this way and now something has changed and and they're they're a little less there seem to be a little more upset those types of things so be looking out for that well knowing that this isn't an exhaustive list obviously uh how can we be on guard and tell the difference between normal adolescent behavior um and and actual problems that that may be going on well, we can create a culture of communication and get to know the students in a safer environment. Talk to the students where they feel safe and heard and guard yourself from any appearance of impropriety. So let's shift gears a little bit. And we're talking about abstaining from that appearance of impropriety and um, and talking to the students being safe. Let's talk a little bit about Perpetrators from from reading the list and seeing some of the pictures of the accused of offenders. Like I said before, there's there's no real key indicator here that you know you can pick them out in a lineup. I mean, some of these guys and women, all they some of them looked like these are people that would be in your church, and and obviously they were. They were people that might be your next door neighbor, and then there were some that you'd say, oh yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe I don't know that I would have hired that guy just based on his looks, but you can't always tell. You can't tell. It doesn't doesn't happen in just small areas or large areas or small churches or big churches or small camps or large camps. It can happen anywhere. So with, with this, how do we how do we identify somebody that that might be doing something like this? How do we spot these people? Well, it isn't easy, but it also goes back to um, the observation. Um, people that are isolating themselves with children or particular children. Um, maybe if you ask questions, they get defensive or over-explain their reasoning for whatever it is they're doing. Um, they may give special attention to certain children or bring them gifts or any type of thing like that just building the trust of these children. So that's why it's important for us to have those systems in place. I mean, if we're we're able to protect ourselves and our ministry when we're talking to students by putting in a system that says, hey, we don't allow this type of behavior, um, then it becomes a little easier to identify between getting to know people in your ministry and the potential grooming that somebody like this might do. So what's uh, what should some of those procedures be? 
No talking to students alone or in private without another leader or director present. No non-approved communication with campers outside of camp. And let me, that one becomes a little bit harder right now because the, the availability of text and WhatsApp and Instagram and TikTok and all of these things. And, and regardless of what or how innocent you think that those things might be in the moment, I, my opinion, and Savannah, you correct me if I'm wrong, but my opinion is it's better to have a policy that says if it's not something that is directed by the camp, like a letter that the camp counselors are all writing to their cabin mates or something like that, that the director sees that gets sent out that's from the camp, it comes from the camp address. Uh, if it's not something like that, it it doesn't need to happen from counselor to camper or from staff member to camper at all, regardless of what method or mode is being used, whether it's online, whether it's through mail, whether it's phone calls, any of that stuff, you need, there doesn't need to be any contact like that. So developing that strict and and swift policy uh, concerning those things, I, I think that would be important, right? Yes. So, as we mentioned some of those trainings and things before, what are what are some ways that uh, directors can prepare their staff to, to recognize these signs? I mean, we talked about, you know, checking out those people and, and putting systems in place to make sure those things don't happen. Uh, like the background checks a lot of times, that's not going to catch everything. You're not going to be everywhere at, at every time and somebody may do something and you may not, may not know or may not find out about it. What are some ways that we can prepare the staff to kind of be more vigilant on those things and to recognize that thing to, to do our best to prevent abuse from happening at their camp? Well, there are several resources and online trainings, and many of them are free that they can do for their staff. You can also check with your state and your insurance provider, and a lot of them have different things that they offer, and they can help determine what might be best for you and your camp. As we kind of wrap up a little bit, many, many camps at this point are already underway. Others are starting very, very soon. Is it too late in the season to start these kinds of things? No, it is never too late to start these types of things. It may mean a special meeting. It may mean shifting gears a little. You have to weigh that against the potential devastation of someone's life. Yeah, I, I think I think not acting is, is definitely worse than acting too late or, or doing whatever. I mean, it's still bad if you act too late, but but there's never a bad time to get something started. Yes. Right. So, um, Savannah, thank you so much for, for being on here and discussing these. I know this was really quick and it's really not even – uh, dipping our toe into the vast water that that needs to be here. But a lot of this falls on the directors and the camp leaders themselves to do the research, to get out there and find out because it is such a, uh, a vast and broad topic. It's not something that can be done in just a little bit of time. If someone wanted to reach out and find out more information from you or, or find out how to ha- how to have you at their camp or at their church to come speak about what you've been through and uh, what you're doing and how those things uh, can affect and what they need to be doing to look out for that. How can they reach you? They can reach me on my website, which is savannaparview.com. 
and that's S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-R-V-U.com. That's a weird, weird last name, P-A-R-V-U, but Parview. But uh, we will uh, make sure to put a link to that and the description as well. Savannah, thank you again for coming out, uh, being on the podcast, but thank you more so for what you're doing for victims and survivors helping out and and leading uh not just being in that charge but leading that charge to the point where uh, you even have a invitation to the governor's mansion right yes yeah that's that's <laughs> awesome so that is uh i think that that states a lot about uh your commitment to that and and ours should be uh to that level as well we should be as committed uh in making sure that we draw the line in the sand uh, for this never to happen here. We need to be, as camp directors, the people that say, this will not happen on my watch. So thank you again for coming out and uh, encouraging us and educating us today on the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. And that was my interview with Savannah Parview, warrior and survivor and great leader in the fight against human trafficking and a great resource for you and your camp in the fight to keep your campers and staff safe, especially during all of this time where there's a greater watch on this. And and rightly so. We should have a greater watch on these things. It should be of the utmost importance to us to ensure that the campers and staff that we have in our care are well taken care of, are well protected, and feel that they're in a safe environment. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for joining us. Look for our next podcast coming out on its regular time. We hope to see you back here soon. This has been Jeff with the SBCA podcast, praying all the best for you, your camps, and your staff as you seek to give him glory in all that you do. See you next time. The SBCA podcast is a production of the Southern Baptist Camping Association. Our theme song, First Day at Camp, written, produced, and performed by Caleb Gilbert.